0: 162nd episode of Reverse Sweat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan and I'm Toby Chad. It's 20 years to the day since Sri Lanka were beaten in the World Cup thanks to a brilliant leg spinner taking a 5-4. It wasn't Shane Warne, it wasn't Anil Kumble, it was the Kenyan Collins Abuya. Welcome to the podcast that is always on the side of the underdog. So 20 years ago, 2003,
1: and this is where I get my World Cups mixed up. Was that the South Africa one? The South Africa Zimbabwe uh, one, where it all went yes, horribly wrong from, for England against um, against Australia um, and didn't get through to the semis and all of, yeah, that one.
0: It was the South Africa one, which also involved Kenya and Zimbabwe and meant that this brilliant victory was something that was actually hosted in Nairobi. And one thing that was very sad, actually, kind of looking back briefly at this game was the fact that obviously Kenyan cricket is not has sort of fallen a lot from um, from that peak. Uh, and yes, the images of sort of a packed Nairobi cricket ground, seeing them beat Sri Lanka, is, sadly feels quite a it's long way It's interesting, I away.
1: must revisit that, because I actually have no recollection of that game at all. I mean, I have a very vivid recollection of that tournament from an England perspective and the whole shenanigans about where they're going to go to Zimbabwe, weren't they forfeiting the game, the impacts of that. A very young James Anderson played in that tournament, I seem to remember. Um, alongside Andy Caddick, that that's worlds colliding. Um, but it just—I think I was probably quite, a, as a fifteen-year-old, I would have been at that age, probably quite quite partisan and not terribly interested in what was going on in the rest of the in the rest of the tournament. So, one to revisit. Not the well-rounded cosmopolitan chap you are that I today. have grown into today. Um, what else have we got in this well-rounded cosmopolitan episode of Reverse Rept Radio? Um, we're going to be talking about the future of of cricket writing. Um, we're going to be talking about the rise, fall and rise of um, Chris Schofield. Chris Schofield is a, is a man who has not talked enough about, and I'm glad we're going to be talking about him today. And we're going to be reviewing a rather delightful film from 1949 called Cricketers All. Um, now, Andy, tell me about what Duncan Hamilton is, Well, what's keeping him up at night.
0: Yeah, well, we hold Duncan Hamilton in very high esteem on this podcast. You only have to go through some of our old episodes to see us kind of singing the praises of several of his books. You know, he really is a very special cricket writer. And the latest edition of The Cricketer contains, um, Mm. I guess, what could only be described as a warning cry from him in which he worries about the future of cricket history writing in particular. Mm. And his theory, um, obviously a danger when you try and summarise a long article in a sentence, but here we go. His theory is that if cricket continues to move more and more towards the short form of the game, why would fans want to read histories about the long form when it's been left behind? And I was reading this and instinctively I just couldn't really share Hamilton's concern. I'm more optimistic and I just felt the long form of the game will survive, it'll thrive and also I, I think of all the books we review on this podcast mm. and Cricket's capacity to inspire fine writing seems as strong as ever it did leave me wondering though because firstly <laughs> you, you obviously take uh, when it's a writer you respect you feel kind of duty bound to take their thesis take seriously, seriously. Yep. so there was a part of me that thought am I being, am I being negligent and complacent here was there was there a sense to which he was suggesting that um the best cricket writing is
1: the writing that's about test cricket, and therefore that you know because there was a lot of it seems to me that you know there is a lot of cricket writing about obviously twenty twenty cricket in the shorter form mm. of the game which has become so kind of dominant um the other thing is that that i that I think has been great is that over the last not even as long as decade but the kind of democratization of cricket writing and blogging and the fact that you don't have to have a sort of established channel whether that's a kind of newspaper or magazine or a publisher to put yourself out in the world that actually there's a kind of um, diversity and I mean that in the kind of newer sense of the word but also the older sense of the word of voices out there writing about cricket in a um, perhaps a greater diversity than there ever has been before.
0: Yeah and and I I think this is his I guess not unreasonably, given the type of writing he undertakes. I think his concern is primarily for, or or kind of, I guess, what you might call traditional cricket history Mm -hmm. writing. I I really agree with you that one interesting feature that's come out the last few years, and 2020 seems to have driven this, is you get a lot more technical cricket writing that I must admit I always find totally fascinating, where someone will explain to you, you know. How how you know, continuing the Collins abuya theme, like they will explain yeah. to you how leg spin works in certain contexts. Um, I, I think his his concern, a lot of it was if we all move towards the short form and if that becomes the focus, w- the fact that a lot of cricket history is focused on the long form will that be uh, be seen as sort of archaic? Um, and instinctively said, I, it, it's it's a concern I sort of struggle to share, but I think it was yeah mm. but but I think but, it's worth taking it's worth thinking yeah well and there,
1: and there is an interesting question that if you are reading about something that is no longer um, part of your current world or your kind of vocabulary as it were, how compelling you know is that reading about something that is extinct so yes, would mm. someone in a world where test cricket God forbid no longer existed want to be reading about test cricket? I think there there is a valid point there it's just the, it doesn't seem like we're quite at
0: that point yet perhaps no and and, i mean if we think back to one of his books that we've enjoyably reviewed on this podcast the last english summer i mean Mm. he does have a he does have a real anxiety about where the long form game is going but no i think you're absolutely right i mean when we read say you know an alan ross tour diary Mm. part of what makes it meaningful to us is that we're drawing comparisons with what we know as watchers of test cricket today and if that goes then i suppose you could still read it but you're reading it as more of a sort of a period piece, of, rather a than, period yep. piece, exactly. Yep. Now, now talking about you know uh, the fact that we may be in an age of better technical breakdown of the game you've <laughs> yeah. been um, you you've been looking at some well some some technical failings but also what some people have been making of these technical well, yes.
1: Yeah, so, so the um i mean the india australia series is is something that has been covered in in great depth elsewhere and it will be news to no one that um australia have have failed in their um, quest to to go and uh, beat india on indian um soil um Part of this obviously for Australia has been the fact of their inability to play spin and in the last test uh, there was a real sense that when they tried to sort of hit their way out of trouble, particularly using the sweep shot, um, that that just led to them imploding rather than, as England have done so successfully, becoming a sort of counter attack against against good bowling. So out of this has come a series of videos by ex players analyzing where exactly it is that the Aussie batsmen are going wrong. So um Matthew Hayden did a piece on the Indian TV channel Star Sports which was out on the wicket that the Australians were were finding so so troublesome. Then um Ian Healy um, set himself up in the Sen office with a bin as a sort of pedal bin as the stumps um, behind him, and did a piece to camera that very much looked like it had been shot on a, an iPhone and was just put out on their Twitter account. I don't know if it was ever, ever kind of broadcast in 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 any way. They're both worth a watch, and they've both been very very widely watched i mean i have never played um spin bowling in india so i can't necessarily attest to the quality of the advice but they seem to me to contain some 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 good um insight in insights um i then saw um i think it was maybe earlier today or yesterday some comments on on twitter from some you know reputable sources and journalists that suggested that a number of the australian batsmen had actually seen these two clips and particularly the ian healy one and that um rather than the usual reaction, which is, oh, here are X players in their slippers telling us what to do. They've forgotten what it's like to be out there and they're just, you know, oversimplifying it and they have no idea. Apparently, the reaction of these players was, oh, wow, this is incredible advice. Why weren't we told this before? Which I think is really, really um, interesting in a, in a kind of, in a, in a a in a couple of ways, in a sort of positive way, which is, it's great that there's this kind of broader sense of, you know, kind of, the cricketing community that information can be passed on from one generation to the next without it being seen as an insult or patronizing or sort of threatening in in some way. Um, But then the flip side of that is, isn't it weird that this, that, means for this to happen is that it's broadcast content that's created not that it's a specialist being brought into the team to kind of you know help out or a backroom staff member passing this stuff on but it's by a like you know an opening batsman who's had a few failures flicking through their Twitter feed and seeing an ex-player demonstrating something that that's where they're getting their kind of technical insights anyway it just just felt like a kind of odd collision of of worlds that particular whole
0: chapter. I've seen the Healy video which Mm. is similar to you I love the schlockiness of the bin yeah. in the office but I wonder if one reason why the Aussie players have responded well to it is that I very much felt the tone of the Healy video was like this is difficult stuff here's what I think it very mm. much wasn't and I, I don't know I mean you might I don't know what the broader tone in Australia is at the moment about the tour but it very much wasn't you guys are idiots this is how you do it yep. um which is I the broader tone also, absolutely the broader this is, is, is the kind w- of which sense which by of, the way bring it on, on themselves
1: and certainly the Hayden one yeah. is they're all doing it wrong. They don't know how to play. Spin. Oh, interesting. Temperament is wrong, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas, whereas as you're right, Ian Healy was very much there is a very specific way that you need to do this, and this is
0: how you do it. I mean, I, I can't sort of speak for, for, well, I can't really speak for any of them, but I certainly can't speak for all of the Australian lineup. But you look at Marnus Labashane sort of up close. Um, and the way he talks about the game, he's a good example of someone who is clearly an obsessive. Mm. And mm. I mean this best, but you know, uh, and, and I remember we in a previous podcast talked about his sort of homemade innovations for improving his batting. Yes. And I could absolutely see him sitting down with any video that anyone put forward and listen to it. I guess the challenge, like with all coaching, instruction, teaching, is how you get that barrier between that balance between new ideas and too much. Because obviously, if you're an Aussie batsman struggling for form in India, you don't need a hundred new ideas you probably need one or two good new ideas yep
1: and you need new ideas that are tailored to you and aren't trying to completely reinvent you from scratch one last thought which is I wonder whether it's slightly like that thing of when you're learning to drive and when it's your parent there next to you telling you how to do it, you resent every single piece of advice. <laughs> and that possibly is how it is when it's your coach. But when it's the driving instructor or someone from the outside making nice suggestions, it's a it becomes a bit more palatable. And perhaps that's the ex-player on social media. There's that kind of distance built in that makes it um, I, I, a bit I, more of an a, appealing proposition for the players.
0: Just imagine Matthew Hayden as your driving instructor. <laughs> I mean, I would, uh, <laughs> I'd either pass very quickly or uh, give up very quickly, I think.
1: from the archives. Now Andy has just told me that this is the feature that he has been itching to do for several years. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is.
0: It is the rise, fall and rise of Chris Schofield. So it's May the 18th, 2000. So what is that, 23 years ago? A 21-year-old is le- on sparkling form. I love the way you had to look into the middle distance to work that out. <laughs> to work out. To work out. Anyway, May the 18th, 2000. Here we are, <laughs> and we're with a 21-year-old leg spinner who is making his English Test debut in just his second season as a professional. Now, every leg spinner who follows the great Australian has to face the inevitable worn comparisons, but those were even easier with Schofield, who had the same laid-back manner and shock of blonde hair. He doesn't get to bowl a single ball. As England seamers blow Zimbabwe away, and he goes wicketless in the second test. But nevertheless, there's still a sense that this is a very exciting thing—an English leg spinner. And
1: he's making his—he's making his England test debut in his second season as a professional player altogether. I mean, had had he have? do you have a sense of? Could you have a memory of whether he was picked on um, a sense of his potential, or because
0: he'd taken an absolute raft of wickets in those firsts? in those more, first two years more the former more the potential i mean he'd done he'd done well but more more the former and i think possibly a sense that you know even though england put out a prop, very much a proper team to go and play zimbabwe, zimbabwe was the time to blood there was perhaps still a, a little bit of experimentation yeah and
1: we you know at that time so desperate to find the game-changing players that
0: you know yeah Well, you say at that time, I mean, England's desperation for the leg spinner, (laughs) yeah, as we know as well.
1: It stretched for a century
0: before that. it It never ends. So we fast forward four years to September 2004 and perhaps has not reached his full potential is the verdict of Lancashire coach Mike Watkinson on the former prodigy. Schofield is being released by the county after a season in which he plays just three county championship games and took just a single wicket. And he's stuck in a loop that I think is wearily familiar to many English Spinner, both o- 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 Offie and leg Spinner. He wasn't getting enough overs to improve. His mm-hmm. bowling, therefore, gets worse, so he gets trusted with even fewer overs. Now, I know you can argue this back and forth. You know, you can say, well, does a Spinner look and wasn't doing enough to earn the right to bowl those overs. But it, it's a sadly familiar pattern in English cricket. And there's also that question which was explored quite well in that I remember
1: in that book on English 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 leg spin that we reviewed, you know, the strange of death ago, of probably. English leg spin. The strange death of English leg spin. Um that question of of how captains perceive Leg spinners and when they bring them on and how often leg spinners are given an impossible hand in terms of what they're trying to, you know, do, as, as in, you know, if they're trying to be brought on to contain rampant batsmen, then actually as a leg spinner, that's a, an almost impossible task unless you're, you know, unless you're shame worn. And really, to your point, as a leg spinner, you need the captain to trust you and bring you on when the pressure's on the batsman, not when the pressure's on the, on the
0: fielding side as well. There's a very nice quote by Mason Crane, who um, mm. I, I saw in one of the articles about Chris Schofield in this piece. That what, what what English clubs want is they don't want a leg spinner; they want Shane Warne, which yeah. is yeah. which is the problem that all all young well all the young leg spinners all, everywhere face. Um, as a little aside, his departure from Lancashire actually ends up in an employment tribunal because Schofield says the lateness of Lancashire's decision prevented him from finding another county, and he actually wins that case. But um, yes, of, of little consolation. When you're, when you're 25 and taking
1: your employer to a... I mean, this doesn't sound like the fairy tale cricket career, really, does it?
0: No, no. And I mean, I think you could argue that the court case then plays a role in some of his struggles in terms of finding another county. Because we fast forward two years to July 2006 and Chris Schofield has been without a county mm. for a season and a half. No one, however, can accuse him of giving up. So this is a description to the cricketer of what his summer looked like at that point. I played club cricket Saturdays, Sundays, minor counties on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then second team county cricket on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. I remember going through June and July. I went through 40 days of non-stop cricket. Every day I'd hoped for rain just to give me a little rest. But I found my game again and found my love for the game again. That's incredible. And the, I mean, when, when you think about that, just in the context of work, you know,
1: you're out of work, and you're trying to sort of prove a point, and suddenly you go out and you work 40 days straight, you would say that there was something that was kind of unhealthy about that, yes. frankly.
0: Well, I think his phrasing is really interesting there because he talks about finding his game again, which is presumably he went and bowled a lot of leg spin and, yes. and by the way, made runs. I mean, he 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 evolved in his career into a real all-rounder. Yeah. But I also think it's very interesting when he talks about finding his love for love the, game the game again. That, yeah. yeah, Because you get the sense that that would kill cover. the
1: love of the game. But, you know, maybe that's exactly as you say, that's what he needed, just a hell of a lot of cricket under his belt.
0: yeah. I mean, it just, physically, it becomes a thing, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, as he says there, like, you do eventually just, your body needs a rest. I mean, uh, 40 days of, well, yeah, of any it ta- form It of, takes me 10
1: days to recover from my little 2020 game on a Sunday morning. <laughs> that,
0: that, that... that <laughs> anyway, is, um, back to Chris <laughs> I, that, that, that may That may hinder your future international call-up. Yeah or, yeah, or at least England will have to use you very sparingly. Um, so we fast-forward... A year and it's fair to say things have changed rather dramatically it's September 2007 and Chris Schofield is playing for England in the first 2020 World Cup how on earth did he pull this off so sorry have to take some of the credit led by um, coach Alan Butcher took a gamble on him and he repaid them handsomely becoming the top wicket-taker in the 2007 2020 Cup England then showed some impressive foresight at this point in realising that 2020 was going to require specialists. So they selected Schofield and a few others who'd been excellent in the county game. Um, And I think all countries were struggling at this point to work out who do you put out into a T20 team. And I think England at least were recognising that it didn't make sense just to pick, you know, the same folk you would for a test match. Unfortunately, this approach um, and this sort of foresight was absolutely not rewarded. England beat Zimbabwe but lost to pretty much everyone else Mm. Australia, India, South Africa, New Zealand. Um, If we are being kind, there were some very tight defeats. So I think looking back at this, you know, particularly the Indian, New Zealand, South Africa games, these were all close defeats. So, you know, if you're being kind, it could have gone, it could have been different. Um, Schofield had a good tournament though, amidst the disappointment. He played in four of the five games and finished with four wickets at 23 apiece and an economy rate of just over seven. only Flintoff and Anderson were more economical, so he did well. He had a good tournament, and it's a reminder as well of
1: the fact that T Twenty has actually kind of rescued, is is the negative way of looking at it, but really turned around the careers of, of quite a lot of you know cricketers who otherwise wouldn't necessarily have found their their slot. Interesting that he kind of t- you know it is it is through Twenty Twenty that he. Well, I'd sort of forgotten that part of his 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 narrative. Um, a bit like the, and I'm now in my post COVID slightly adult state can I forget who it was. Who was the Essex batsman who very early on in the twenty twenty days scored? Graham Napier massive, like, Graham Napier. Yeah. Off off not very many runs and suddenly, you know, kind of middle in county career and then off you go and you're you're a twenty twenty star. It's kind of one of the remarkable things that twenty twenty has done in terms of developing the broader pool of of cricketers.
0: Definitely and as it then, then it's then up to the selectors to sort of give those players a chance. So Schofield would injure his thumb the next year which would lead him to slip down the pecking order and he wouldn't actually play for England again Um, but he did have four more seasons with Surrey which included more success you know trophies, promotions Mm -hmm. and continued his evolution into a true all-rounder I mean he scored a lot of runs actually for Surrey Um, and I think Schofield's story captures so much um, of the English game in particular good and bad there's this tendency we touched on at the start to overhype a spinner and particularly a leg spinner yeah. while at the same time completely failing to support them properly i hope we've got better at that i think we're going to learn with um, rain Ahmed, who you know the the, mm. the the sort of leg spin prodigy who appeared in Than in pakistan we'll we'll see how we do with him um there's then the depth of the english game which means that a professional who's lost his way does have a way to find uh, a return into the game so you know the fact that england's cricket has so many levels meant that he could go back to the club game and and find a way back Mm. And I think it's also worth talking about the selectors because Schofield's story is a mix of selectorial incompetence and success in a way. The premature Test debut at the start probably did him no favours in that it built unrealistic expectations and I think probably messed up sort of his more like natural path of development which Mm. probably would have been better done like less in the spotlight from the start. Just bowling a lot of babies in county cricket, yeah exactly and don't don't build the pressure sooner than you need to but then at the same time you have to give credit to Surrey and England yep. who both at a later stage in his career sort of brought him back um, but of course for all that uh, the story's hero is very much Schofield himself for how on earth he kind of dragged himself back into the game after those early struggles and I'll leave him to have the last word, if you represent your country it's because you're a good player to the review and for this episode we've been watching Cricketers All Uh, this was a documentary made in 1949 the director and I'm pretty sure the narrator is George Whittaker who was the manager of Colin Mills he made several amateur documentaries about the Mills but was also a great cricket lover and president of Rottenstall Cricket Club so one of the two teams in the film The film is primarily an account of a Lancashire League match between Rottenstall and Bay Cup, but that actually doesn't quite do it justice because there is, well, there's more to it than that. Now, we've read lots about the Lancashire Leagues. You read enough cricket history and they come up both because of their role in the English game, but also the players who came over. What what did this add to your sort of understanding and knowledge of, of that form of the English game?
1: I think this is the first um I think this is the first time I've actually watched a kind of reasonably lengthy film about the um uh about the Lancashire League and a l- I suppose a lot of the impact of it was bringing to life many of the things that you read about but because they're quite um foreign to how we understand sort of local cricket now are actually quite difficult to conceive. One of the things being the enormous popularity of the games. You know, we're so used now to the pictures of the one man and a dog at the county, you know, even the sort of popular county games that you suddenly think of local league cricket. And the statistic of a crowd of 10,000 out of a town population of 30,000, so one in three, of a town's population turning up to a weekend game. We don't get a sense of how exceptional this is. But suddenly you realise that cricket becomes not just a kind of sporting function, but also a social function and a sort of civic function um, within the within the town. And that was certainly one thing that, that was brought home, you know, particularly strongly, not least because the way the film is constructed, we spend an awful lot of time Watching the crowds, um, I think because of the lack of kind of long lens um, film cameras at the time, we can't actually see too many of the highlights out on the out on the pitch, and so I would say what two thirds of the sort of match section is actually spent watching the um, watching the crowds. How did you
0: enjoy the people watching phenomenon? Well, <laughs> the footage is rather charming because the crowd. I think today if you put a camera on a crowd at a sports game, everyone plays up to it and they enjoy it. Yes. Whereas this crowd is much They're more sort of... Superior. ignoring studiously ignoring yeah. it. Yeah, well, well. I mean, some of them, uh, it's almost actively hostile. Yeah. Um, one thing that's very striking, which is referred to in the film, is actually how, mu- how much of a mixed gender crowd it is. Yes. And I was reflecting on the fact that if I go to either county championship, 2020, or it's a test today, very mildly, the reality it? is it's an overwhelmingly male crowd. And to quote the narrator here, nowadays the whole family comes. And actually, you know, it's not 50-50, but there are an awful lot of women um, in the crowd. And it, it does slightly make you reflect that when tournaments, and I'm not just having a go at the 100, but when tournaments like the 100 are desperately sort of focus grouping to say, how do we get more women along? The Lancashire Leagues apparently had this cracked, you know, 70 years ago. Yes, and and without the
1: benefits of, you know, one, one of the things that's quite kind of um, fun is that the narrator assumes that you have no idea sort of what a cricket... You, you might as well sort of almost be watching kind of monkeys in some sort of social experiment because he explains things like when there's a break in play, some people will leave their seats, but because they can't be guaranteed to get their seats back, other people won't leave. And, you know, so we have all of these things kind of explained to us in, in, in I think, quite a kind of um charming Where The other thing that, that's interesting is the relatively is the focus and the kind of um, excuse almost that's given for the use of the loudspeaker in the
0: ground. <laughs> what did you make of that? This so <laughs> this also makes sense in the context that Whitaker was a president at Rottenstall because I think he's clearly proud of everything, all the tech they've got. So they show several close ups of this bright red loudspeaker. And he gives it as an example of moving with the times, and you're quite right. And he's almost a bit apologetic about it. He feels, and you, you think now, um, in the age of or at of least the pitch he's trying to justify it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You're right, but the, but the exactly the same um, when you make that comparison, because I thought the same thing that he talks about it as being a way of communicating to the crowd so they know what's going on in the pitch, um, but also of entertaining the crowd. Mm-hmm. and it's just like you know obviously we now have cheerleaders flamethrowers and back in the day they had a you know loud yes. big, it is very interesting oh. how exactly the same theory is used at both oh. times but yet people now will say oh this is a totally new invention
0: although we must we, we've talked about one of the great technical innovations but the other technical oh, I innovation that remains I uh, I, I, this remains utterly bonkers to the point where i thought this might be some sort of wind up yeah. uh, at the end of the game some some poor man goes out and sets off a couple of, basically as far as you can see, sort of fireworks. Fireworks, Rockets, yeah. yeah. And the, the principle is he puts up one rocket for a draw, two rockets for a win. Um, and I just have so many questions about it. So I assume no rockets go up if they lose. But, and but, but what was great, though, was,
1: was the sense, not that this is out of celebration, that, you know, like set off the fireworks, we've won. But in order to let the other people in the town know... What the result is as soon as possible, which does seem a little bit of a. I mean, I, I wonder how much the rest of the town is is sitting there on tenterhooks hooks waiting for the you know rocket to, to go up and sort of blink if you, um, blink if you miss it. But I thought it, I thought it was a beautiful tradition to be honest, and I'm keen to introduce um, that to my own, my own side.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was sort of, I thought it was kind of wonderful, um, but at the same time, I just. I wanted to know who these people were in Rottenstall sitting around waiting to see that um, while we're on the subject of sort of, uh, you know, interesting features. I had again read about this concept of the collection being taken after a 50, but I guess this is the great thing about a documentary seeing it in person, uh, seeing it, live was absolutely fascinating because it also made you realize when these players and club staff are running around with the wooden boxes it becomes very hard for you as a spectator to not put something in oh <laughs> you know I mean?
1: totally when it's for yeah, yeah exactly the other opening the other opening batsman it does become you're having it very much kind of shoved under your nose rather than a voluntary it, yeah it, it's less voluntary than it might um than it might otherwise it might otherwise be so the cricket itself is a is a large part of the, or the report on this particular match is a large part of the film. Um, There's then another section that sits um, before it, uh, which includes what I actually felt was (laughs) the most compelling of all, which was, and it's not the bit you think I'm going to say, although that was damn good too, but the footage, the footage filmed um, close-up of the overseas professionals, kind of, there's an introduction to a five or six overseas professionals, and we see them either bat or bowl kind of close up and actually for me and I went back and re-watched this several times I thought it was bloody brilliant was the footage where the camera was positioned behind the stumps behind the batsman and you saw the bowler kind of coming towards you bowling at you because you got a real sense of their flight their pace the extent with the spin bowlers and several of them were the extent to which they were they were turning the ball and for the First time, actually, even compared to a lot of the footage available nowadays of contemporary 21st century bowlers, you've got a real sense of what it actually would have been like to face those bowlers. Now, this is something that's obviously um, imposed by technological limitation, where you didn't have photo lenses, so you had to actually stage stuff on the pitch in order to get anything close up. You couldn't do it from the boundary during a game. But I actually found that stuff fascinating and rewatched it, as I say, kind of several several times. Is that just what, no what I agree you, you it was that? really
0: it was really compelling. You also got the sense that he was playing with the technology he had in that At the end of the sequence, for reasons that aren't totally clear to me, he then does experiment with a bit of slow motion footage, which he previously hasn't had early on. So he then tries that, which is really interesting, slow motion of one of the spinners. My my personal highlight is, and you're quite right, even though it's staged, it's still very compelling. Everton Weeks, who again is someone who, you know, you read enough cricket history, you run into Everton Weeks pretty often. It is still, it feels... um, it feels like a sort of privilege to be able to watch um, mm. some of his stroke making, and even though he's doing so in a like non-competitive and I guess pretty contrived and context, the ball's just
1: being kind sort of lobbed up a bit at him. yeah, yeah.
0: It, it's still pretty, still pretty show-stopping. I, I think we have to mention. Because we both had an almost identical experience with this—the the start of the film. Do you do you want to? Um, remind yeah, so us I,
1: about... I actually I actually watched this film while I was on my on my COVID sick bed, and I was looking for something nothing, some, something that wasn't too high octane. And the <laughs> beginning of the film delivered in the most beautiful way because the film starts, and I thought there was something wrong with my laptop because for the first <laughs> probably, oh, maybe five six minutes there is nothing but just (laughs) silent footage of the english countryside not not even it's not even cricket pitches it's just a little beautiful watermill and a field and a river (laughs) and i lay there thinking this is this is this is what i'm here for this is gorgeous and then we see a cricket match over a over a hedge but i felt better Almost instantly from watching. I,
0: from watching. I don't know if this is still a thing, but there was a fuss a few years ago about slow, slow TV. TV. Yes, yes and you know exactly. people would watch eight-hour films of a train journey and stuff. Yep. And it felt very much like that. So it's so it's very soothing. So in its way, this film is quite uh, with it, with its many parts. In this way, it's quite a sort of it's quite an adventurous film and an I la think mode it's a kind of film yeah well yeah it, it, it does an awful lot in its 40 45 minutes I think it's also just a documentary in the truest sense of the word in that you know how lucky are we that we have that record you know that record of what a Lancashire League mm. game looked like at the mm. time um you know it's so great that someone like Whitaker actually had the foresight to to preserve it so it's definitely worth a watch now I
1: can't actually remember where we watch it is it on youtube or is it on no we saw so it on vimeo actually, on the we channel watched of... it on
0: vimeo but i've actually found since that it's available on the british film institute website so okay. yes if you search cricketers all on well i'm sure if you search it just on google but certainly on the bfi website you can um you can watch it so
1: um that comes with our heartiest um recommendations a very in its own particular way, a very compelling watch. Um, And that was the 162nd episode of Reverse Raps Radio.